Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 3. No matter where he goes, no matter if he's married to her or not, he is the same person. And that person is an insomniac. Though there isn't a clock in sight, he knows it's edging on two in the morning, and she fell asleep long ago. Like the night before, he's still as he lies alongside her, on his side, and looking towards her, because he doesn't want to wake her by shifting. The quilt on the bed is blue-gray, and looks handmade, pulled up over her shoulders to keep her warm, hands bunching blankets in front of her face. Even while simply looking at her, he feels as if he's prying, as if he's going through her suitcase, as if he's looking up each of her medications in a medical almanac and seeing what each one does, though these aren't her private moments anymore, he feels as if they should be. And it makes him want to stand up, ever so slowly, and tiptoe to the couch, then wake as early as he can to come back so that she won't notice that he's gone. Though she's letting him in, he still feels as if he should keep away. But then he notices a trickling coming from her nostril, oil slick but thin, and he's reaching towards his bedside table for tissues with one hand, tapping her shoulder gently with the other. She stirs uncomfortably, eyelids pressing tightly shut, while he holds out a wad of tissues. Nosebleeds, he whispers, as if he's actually trying not to wake her. Sitting up, she takes the tissue and starts to blot her face, looks down to see her pillow miraculously survive this bleed. Her legs crossed, her hands bracing against her face, she tilts her head and closes her eyes in annoyance, in exhaustion. Now that she's given up, these should just stop happening. If she's already admitted defeat, what use is a spare reminder that she's dying? Shouldn't things have gotten easier after she admitted that she was never going to get better? Shouldn't her god have cut her some slack? The bridge of her nose, he thinks. So he reaches up to grasp it between his thumb and forefinger. Holding there stops bleeding, or so he's heard. If he holds there, he'll stop her bleeding. At the touch, she opens her eyes, looks down at him in the dark. She's punctuated by bloodied tissues, dark eyelashes, the piping edge of her flannel pajamas. Their eyes lock, and he wants to take her face in his hands and kiss her forehead. If he thinks hard enough to remember her scans, maybe he could kiss right over where the tumor is. And maybe he could... Molder, she says. He can't read her tone. Can't tell if she wants to say, keep holding me like this or never touch me again. So he lets go, takes his hand back, brings his arms back under the covers. I'm sorry, he says, and he wants to race out of this room and sleep on the couch instead. He wishes he didn't know what the bridge of her nose felt like between his fingers. Sighing, she leans towards the garbage bin on the floor and throws out her tissues. Make sure that that's the last of the blood. And he doesn't know what to do. Though she's had nosebleeds on cases before, he's never been this close to her during one, and he's never woken her to deal with one before. Of course, he's never woken her to deal with one before. He's never slept beside her. Or rather, he's never slept beside her like this, as someone who can wake her and tell her that her nose is bleeding, as someone who should care for her. Shouldn't he do more? Does she have pills to take after nosebleeds? What did she want from him in all of this? We need to talk about it all, he thinks, but then she lies down beside him, and he stills because she's going to fall asleep and leave him to himself again. He should have made the most of his few minutes not sleeping with her. He should have paid more attention. Mulder, she says again, 
tone still so hard to read, and he wishes she would just ask. He wishes she would just say something else. But instead of saying something else, she moves towards him in bed and gets so close that he stops breathing, and she folds her arms up in front of herself in a way that makes him want to wrap his arms around her, so he holds her there gently, his nose brushing against her hair, her eyelashes fluttering against his skin. When he starts to breathe normally again, he feels that she's shaking. He won't be able to sleep like this, but it feels better to not sleep like this. It feels better to stay awake while holding her. It feels better to stay still while she falls back to sleep against him than it ever could to find a couch and sleep there instead. By the time he manages to drift off, he can see out the window that the sky full of stars has turned bright, the first bit of real morning creeping in, and she hasn't moved away from him at all. When he wakes, the blinds are open, the house is chilly because he needs to put more wood in the stove, and she's taking a shower, the sound of water offering him comforting white noise. There isn't any blood on her pillow, and he gets up. He almost wishes there were. For then, he would have solid evidence that she spent last night in his arms, afraid and vulnerable, seeking him out because she needed him. But then he notices the last remnants of her perfume left on his shirt, and he pulls his collar up to his nose to take in the scent closing his eyes for a moment, wondering if he'll see her little bottle in the bathroom sink and run one finger over it lovingly. It's one thing to call out to her as she leaves work that she forgot her sweater and then catch the aroma as he hands the garment back to her. It's another entirely to see the bottle she holds to her neck and spritzes. So, French toast. On the bookshelves in the cottage, there are a few musty cookbooks. The book jacket's dark and fraying. He picks up a Jacques Pepin and flips through to find breakfast, then pays attention to the general ingredients and ignores the rest of the recipe. Cinnamon, nutmeg, milk, eggs. It can't possibly be that hard. As he butters the pan, he wonders why he didn't do this more often for himself. Cook for someone else. But he's always liked a greasy spoon, and he's never been one to have friends over. When he's with the gunmen, he sometimes eats what they're eating. Ranch eggs on a good day, but instant ramen on a normal one. But at home, he either orders in or scrapes together whatever's in the kitchen into a makeshift meal. He only started bringing lunches to work after Scully yelled at him about the inadequacy of his diet. But then he had to watch as her lunches grew smaller and smaller, leveling out in the end to a single yogurt cup. This isn't right, he always thought, as he picked up his prepackaged grocery store sandwich. But he never spoke up about it, at least not seriously. And now he's making her French toast. He whips the egg mixture in a pie plate left in the cottage, then ducks the bread as deeply as it'll go. Though he's probably put too much butter in the pan, he doubts that'll be a bad thing. Even if his cooking skills haven't been exercised in years, he's still sharp with the spatula. Through the window above the kitchen sink, he watches the tide come in between flips. The ocean is dark gray and brooding, and he's yet to see another soul on the beach. Hearing her leave the bedroom, he stills. He doesn't know what she looks like after she bathes. No... He does. He's known that for a while. He's seen her with wet hair on cases. He knows how she looks when she's red-faced and fresh from a shower. But it's different now. Did she keep the ring on? He's desperate to know, but unable to ask. Morning, she says, and he listens as she sits down behind him at the tiny two-person kitchen table. Beneath a hanging light and pressed against the far wall, if he were to pull out the chair opposite her, he would hit the refrigerator with its back. Good morning, he says, and almost trips over his words. His shirt still smells just a little bit like her, 
She uses lavender shampoo. He wants to brush her hair. What's for breakfast, she asks, and her tone is just as unreadable as it was last night, and he rushes to flip a slice of toast before it burns. Toast, he says. When he looks back at her, he sees her resting her elbows on the table, leaning forward. She's wearing a wool sweater, dark green and cow-necked, and he still hasn't put wood in the fire yet. Damn it. Her hair is shades darker while wet. Her eyes are much bluer without the red for contrast. He's imagined the scene so many times that he stumbles making her a plate, that he trips over words and doesn't know how to feel. At night, he would quell insomnia by thinking of waking up next to her, making her pancakes while she sits on his kitchen counter and flirts with him while wearing one of his shirts. On long, tough cases, he would inevitably close his eyes on his motel bed and imagine her coming into his room, crawling into his bed, cozying into his arms. He's gone through every possibility already, and in each, imagining, he does the exact right thing. In each, imagining, he's the proper romantic hero, and she loves him. He cradles her, and she loves him. He kisses her over breakfast, and she loves him. And they've exhausted the frivolities, know each other's deepest secrets and greatest fears already, have gone before her God and profess their love to each other. But he still doesn't know if he should hold her hand. The burden is greater, he thinks, when someone already knows you love them. In comparison, an awkward first date would be so easy. The permission's customary. The askance typical. Now she is his wife and he is her husband, and he wants to kiss her good morning but can't. He slides the plate of French toast in front of her, then slips a fork and knife alongside the plate. Looking down, she stares at the breakfast, and he can't tell if she's impressed or not, and he remembers how the bridge of her nose felt between his fingers, and he wishes he were still holding her in bed while she slept. Are you going to have any? She asks, looking up at him. Yeah, yeah, he says, then plates his own, then sits across from her. Like the good Christian girl she is, she doesn't start eating until he has his own plate in front of him. He can eat in front of her. He's eaten in front of her plenty of times before. First, he needs to cut a piece, then put that piece onto his fork, then put the fork into his mouth. After breakfast, he'll do the dishes, and meanwhile asks her what she wants to do today, and they'll do whatever it is she wants to do. A few towns over, there's a nice restaurant that's open year-round. And if they drive out in a certain direction on the main road, then hike a little ways, they'll be able to find a lighthouse. It's off-season, but he's trying to do what he can for her. He's trying. He stills as she takes one of his hands, as she grips in her own, as she pulls him back to the current moment. When he looks up at her, he watches as she stares at their joined hands, his left and her right, his ring finger and her bare finger. It's okay, she doesn't tell him. Her hand is soft, and when she lets go, he feels a streak of her lotion left behind on his fingertips, and he's going to hold her hand again today. He's going to hold her hand again today. The thing is that they need to talk. As he drives, he keeps a running list of topics. What she wants out of this honeymoon. Whether or not he should call it a honeymoon. What the boundaries of their marriage are. Why they married at all. Why he even has to ask about boundaries in the first place. He doesn't know what she likes to do on Saturdays, even though he's stolen so many of hers over the past few years. If asked, he wouldn't be able to say what her favorite food is, or her favorite color, or her favorite shirt, or her favorite book. But he loves her, and that makes it seem as if he's allowed to ask her every question he possibly could. She married him, so it seems only right that he can ask if he could kiss her again. 
In the evenings, she tends to be tired and calm, not looking to go out. So he drives them both out to the nearest big, though the word is to be used loosely, town, just a four-building Main Street, a gas station, a general store, and a regional supermarket that seems to have the state's entire population in the parking lot. While she pulls out a shopping cart, her rain jacket, maroon but more purple than red, it's misty out today, falls off her shoulder, and he reaches over to put it back, and she doesn't flinch away from him, doesn't even notice what he's done. First, they need staples, more eggs, more bread, more milk. Though they're not in season, she picks up and weighs in her hand four different Honeycrisp apples, spinning them in her little fingers to check for bruises. If they divide and conquer, she tells him, then they'll get through this quicker, and she would like to see that lighthouse today. Thinks it might be beautiful in this weather. So he nods to her and takes an outstretched list she's pinned down. So like his scully. To keep a tiny notebook and pin in her purse for things like this. He scans down the list. Granola. Two gallon-sized bottles of water. Zinc oxide sunscreen, even though the sun hasn't come out for them yet. Turkey and Swiss cheeses for sandwiches. Snack pack chocolate pudding. He stops as he's walking away from her. Froze his brow. Snack pack chocolate pudding? She even specified the brand. When he was a child, he would watch as other children had those in their school lunches. And though his family wasn't poor by any means, all he and his sister ever got were little packages of peanuts and a small apple. Their lunches were carbon copies, except that he liked his crust off his sandwiches and Samantha didn't. And their lunches felt almost sterile in comparison to those of his classmates, typically pulled from an MRE and then placed into a child's lunch bag. The other children would dip their spoons into chocolate pudding and seem far more affluent in comparison. Still, snack pack chocolate pudding. The last time he saw the inside of Scully's refrigerator, she had almond milk, spinach, and a rotisserie chicken inside. Absolutely nothing else, not even mayonnaise or mustard, but that was before she was sick. Looking back, he can't remember if he ever saw her eat cake before their wedding. He's heard that most couples will do a cake testing while planning their wedding. They'll sit down in a bakery and try little pieces of every offering, lemon, red velvet, carrot, chocolate marble, and decide exactly which frosting and batter went best together. For their wedding, they just had a marble cake, white buttercream, a bright blue congratulations Dana and Fox scrawled on top in her mother's script. He should have taken a picture of it. He should have pushed down the anxious nausea he felt that day and actually enjoy the slice cut for him. Though he shouldn't be paralyzed by four words, he has to force himself to walk through the snack aisle because he can't even picture Scully eating chocolate pudding. He can't picture her licking a spoon. Sure, he's seen her eat yogurt, but there is a great difference between dessert on a spoon and lunch on one. He's never watched her savor something sweet like that, has never watched her scrape the bottom of a pudding cup in hopes of getting every last bit. On the shelves, there are multi-packs, some cups half vanilla and half chocolate, but she said chocolate specifically, so he takes down a four-pack of chocolate cups. Is that enough? He doesn't know how she feels about chocolate pudding. Two packages would be better, wouldn't they? Two packages, eight cups. That should be enough. But when he returns to her, when he opens his arms and lets the pudding cups fall, he neglected to get the other items on the list. He apologizes. He says he'll be right back. There are not one or two, but ten packages of pudding in the cart. Then he pulls his wallet from his pocket, stretches out his American Express towards her, says, this is on me, very insistently, and maybe they should have a joint credit card. Maybe they should have a joint bank account. Maybe when they get home, they should apply for a tax break together. Is that how it all works? 
because he never thought he'd be married. He never really looked into such things. Maybe they could buy a house together and have both of their names be on the deed. All right, she concedes, taking the credit card. Though she's not put off, she furrows her brow in confusion anyway, looking down at the pile of pudding cups, and he looks down too, and the cups mountain on the inside the shopping cart, and everyone else here sounds like they're from New England and buys more than just the bare essentials and chocolate pudding. And his eyes narrow in on them. He didn't realize that grocery stores sold such things. He always found them at drugstores back when he needed to buy them. She found condoms somewhere, and she nestled one package beneath the carton of eggs. Not flaunted, but certainly not hidden. Looking up at her, she meets his gaze, then forces out a little laugh, crinkles forming around her eyes. I didn't need that much pudding, she says. But she isn't angry, and instead is charmed. Cheeks warm, hair held back in a clip, eyes so discerningly blue. You're not very good at following a list. Right, he says, then looks back down at the list in his palm, at her forest green rain boots beneath her jeans, at his own shoes. Yeah, right, the list. Yeah, right. And she looks down at the cart and laughs again, shaking her head. And they have so many things that they need to talk about, from what they'll spend the rest of the day doing to why there are condoms in their cart. But he doesn't want to talk right now, doesn't want to think at all. So he shoves the list into the pocket of his coat and goes to her. And she looks at him and furrows her brow and asks what he's doing. But before she finishes her sentence, he kisses her. And it's intense because he only ever kissed her once before. It's intense because he loves her in ways he'll never be able to explain or describe. And she's so short when she isn't in her work attire. And somehow the white shelved aisle of this little supermarket frames them perfectly, void now of chocolate pudding. The people in the background buying butter for dinner and windshield wiper fluid for the rain. The radio hits of 10 years ago playing over the loudspeaker. Fluorescent light, linoleum floors. He doesn't know what to do with his hands. Is this too much, he wonders. Then he feels a stabbing sensation in his gut. That shame. But then one of her hands comes to his chest. The crease of his collarbone. And she's gentle. Too gentle for him to deserve. And the only thing more incredulous than her marriage to him is the fact that she likes being married to him. They still need to talk, but when she touches him, he understands. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.